In other words, everybody must recognize that certain things are objectively wrong, whether we happen to like like the fact or not. Um, and so this is the funny thing about subjectivism. We, we all, we play the game two ways. Um, you are subjective in your sense of right and wrong, but I am objective in my sense of right and wrong. In other words, yes. I can do what I like and you mustn't tell me anything that I do is wrong. Hello, welcome to Andiflow Remains. I'm your host, Mike Lovett, and I have on the line today a great friend of the program, Michael Ward. Michael Ward, a Catholic priest, is senior research fellow at Blackfriars Hall, University of Oxford, and professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. He is the author of the best-selling and award-winning Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis, co-editor of The Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis, and presenter of the BBC. BBC television documentary, The Narnia Code. On the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death, uh, Michael unveiled a permanent national memorial to him in Poets Corner, Westminster Abbey, London. Welcome to the show, Michael. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Mike. It, it is my pleasure, and it's great to have you. This is I've been anticipating this conversation. It's, it's very exciting for me. Um, before we get into your new book, After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, um, the, the C.S. Lewis community recently um, lost its godfather, I would say, in, in Walter Hooper. And, and many people, I don't think, know of him or know of his work. And I was hoping that maybe you could share a little bit, uh, maybe a little tribute to him and, and, and help people to realize his contribution to um, the family of C.S. Lewis. Yes, they might not know him uh, by by face or by voice, um, but they almost certainly would know him by name because everybody who's read anything um, by C.S. Lewis that came out since his death, that is to say his diaries, his letters, his collections of short pieces, um, and indeed um, certain biographical works, will have encountered the name Walter Hooper because he has been the person behind them. <laughs> right. Uh, since Lewis's death in 1963, uh, Hooper became the leading Lewis editor and biographer and scholar expert. Uh, he lived in Oxford, though he comes he came from North Carolina, um, and yeah, he uh, completely led and and led very well the, the the world of Lewis scholarship all those decades. And alas, he died in December, and. Um, he leaves a big gap behind him. Oxford feels much emptier without him. I had the great privilege of knowing him for over 30 years. Uh, he was a good friend, and I was greatly honoured to be asked to preach the homily at his funeral, um, which took place in January. Uh, and, yeah, I've recently written a, an obituary for him too in the Journal of Inkling Studies, um, so, uh, yeah, we're all mourning his loss um, and praying for the repose of his soul and giving thanks that we knew him, and not just that we knew him, but that he did so many great things um, for the legacy of C.S. Lewis. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Well, thank you. And, and, uh, and thank you for that tribute. I, um, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm my limited, um, uh, I guess I workings with the people in, in, in the CS Lewis community, you know, uh, all of them seem to reflect that gentlemanly yet fierce, uh, uh, you know, uh, push for truth and, and, uh, that, that, that he had it, it really kind of has been a little bit of a reflection of him as well as C.S. Lewis. Yes. He, uh, he, he was both gentle and, um, uh, what's the right word? Pugilistic. I, I would say, um, yeah. he, uh, he was a very mild mannered, soft spoken Southern gentleman, but he was also, um, yeah, fierce to use your word. Uh, in he, he he reminds me of of a, of a second in a duel. Lewis had you know perished, uh, and Walter picked up the rapier and carried on the uh, carried on the fight, uh, and did so with with to great effect and with great aplomb um, for all, all those decades. Wonderful. Um, one other thing before we get into the book, I also I have to mention. I understand you you took up your acting card again, and uh, um, and, and talk a little bit about that. You just you just uh, were in it or are or just filmed, I guess, a, a movie that's coming out later this year. Can you talk a little bit about that quickly. Yeah, the film is uh, the most reluctant convert. It's the it's a film version of the stage play by the same ti- of the same title, starring Max McLean, a one-man show which has been quite successful in recent years, and it's now being made into a movie um, directed by Norman Stone, who who made the original BBC Shadowlands, and he also, as it happens, directed mm. the the BBC documentary that I presented, ah, the, the Narnia Code. So I, I've I've known Norman Stone for some years, and. When he came to film this most reluctant convert, he saw that there was a part for a vicar, the C.S. Lewis's parish priest, uh, only a small part with only a few lines, and he thought that it was probably within my capacity. <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm not a professional actor, but I've done a bit of amateur stuff, and um, and they often say, don't they, that, that clergymen are actors monkey. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, he asked me to do this, and I had a brilliant couple of days on the film set uh, playing the parish priest, and it was all filmed in the church where Lewis worshipped um, here oh, in Oxford. Um, fine. Yeah, I got to meet not only Max McLean, who plays the older Lewis, but also um, this younger actor, uh, Nicholas Ralph, who plays the younger Lewis. And Ralph, he's, he's just become famous just in the last year. Uh, I don't know if he's yet known very widely in America, but if you've seen the new PBS TV show, All Creatures Great and Small, um, Nicholas Ralph plays the lead character in that and um, okay. has suddenly become quite prominent. And And he's brilliantly cast as the young C.S. Lewis. He looks very much like the young C.S. Lewis. <laughs> um and I've seen a, I've seen the uh, the movie. It's already been screened to to cast and crew, though it hasn't been released publicly yet. And I'm very pleased to say that it's it's good. It's very faithful to Lewis's story. Nearly all the script is taken from Surprised by Joy. Uh, it deals oh. unabashedly in theological and spiritual matters. And um, I, I recommend it. Everybody should keep their eyes peeled for when it's released later in the year. 
Fantastic. Yeah, we de- I will definitely be looking for that. All right. Well, let's let's jump into After Humanity, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. Um, what? Which, by the way, for those that are interested, they'd be able to find it on uh, at wordonfire.org. Um, there will be a link in the in the show notes. But the first question that I have for you um, is is this: When I started this podcast, one of my main thrusts, one of the main things I wanted to do was was share with people why um, tackling great art, tackling great music, great literature. You know why that was important, and and whether you you know you don't have to be a musician or a scholar or a um, or a writer you know to appreciate and and take something great from great works, and and can you maybe just share why somebody whether they are obviously almost everybody's aware of C.S. Lewis and his and his writings, but but maybe the, they're not they're not Narnia fans or or maybe not. You know they don't. They haven't read much of their of his apologetics, um, but why is this an important book? Why is this a great book, and why is it worthwhile for somebody to tackle? The Abolition of Man is one of Lewis's most uh, important and influential works. Uh, it's been listed as among the, the the top ten works of nonfiction in the 20th century by the National Review and by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Um, It's widely admired by Christians of every stripe and indeed by non-Christians. It's not a specifically Christian apologetic. It's a philosophical work. It's not theological. It doesn't depend on um, a Christian commitment or a theistic commitment even. Um, which isn't to say that it's incompatible with Christianity. Of course, it's entirely compatible. And indeed, Lewis is really using his arguments in this book as a as a sort of baseline, a, a kind of prepara- a, a preparation towards evangelism, um, if you want to put it like that. Um, and it's a, it's a defense of the objectivity of value on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's a, it's a forecast, it's a prophecy about what will happen to us if we don't uh, maintain that value is objective. If we begin to think, oh, we, we just make value up, good and evil, right and wrong are things we just project onto the world, but they don't have any substantial reality. If we adopt that position, we're on a short course to uh, disaster. Um, we're basically abolishing our own humanity, which is why the book is called The Abolition of Man, and my guide is called After Humanity. Um, and it's not just uh, Lewis's readers who have responded well to it. Lewis himself thought very highly of it and said of it, it's almost my favourite among my books. Uh, so it's something that all Lewis readers ought to know about, though it's understandable why some don't, because it's it's quite... Dense. It's quite difficult by C.S. Lewis's standards. It's it's yeah. In, it's it's not very accessible. Um, hence the need for the guide. And I've been teaching the abolition of man for years now to my students, uh, both here in Oxford and sometimes at Houston Baptist University. And um, I've noticed that they have difficulty with it. And um, that's what I'm trying to help. Uh, you know, ease. I'm trying to right. make the abolition of man more accessible, more comprehensible um, with this guide. 
it's such you know the abolition of man is such an interesting book because it you know it's roughly a uh, hundred uh, large margin spaces uh, pages <laughs> you know it's 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 not a long book but it's a v- extremely deep book and and there there's a lot there and and so in some ways somebody could look at it and and, and could read it in an afternoon and you know and and maybe get something from it but in, but. It is also, in, in some ways, a, a life's work to, to get through it and, and mm. to really understand the the depth. So, I I truly appreciate the, this guide. Um, maybe talk about the the, the structure of um, the abolition of man and where it came from and and the history of it a little bit. Yeah, it is a short book because it's based on just three lectures that Lewis gave during the Second World War, um, and as you say, it's only about 100 pages. You could read it in a couple of hours. Um, uh, But it's dense. I think a good way to limber up for it um, is to read the first four chapters of Mere Christianity, where Lewis is making a very similar argument, but in much more accessible terminology. Mere Christianity, of course, originated as BBC addresses over over the radio, where Lewis... Uh, you know, couldn't depend on his audience having any particular level of education. Right. The Abolition of Man was high-level philosophy lectures at one of the great universities of England, uh, not at Oxford as it happens, but at the University of Durham. Uh, so Lewis travelled up to Durham. Uh, Durham is, by most reckonings, the third oldest university in England after Oxford and Cambridge. It's very beautiful uh, city, uh, Durham, though actually Lewis gave his lectures in Newcastle, uh, for a complicated reason we needn't get into. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, um, it's a wartime series of lectures, a high-level university it's, context. It's interesting to me, yeah, it was during the wartime, and, and wasn't the subject he was giving something, I think you you wrote in here, that it was the, uh, the, the basically, uh, how religion and modern thought work together. I, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but, but, but the subject is, is religion and modern thought, contemporary thought. And yet he does not specifically, it is, this is not a religious work other, other than the fact that he uses religion as um, maybe as, as standards, but, but the, you wouldn't call this any, in any way an apologetic book, as you mentioned, it's a philosoph- uh, philosophical book. Yes. So he was asked to go up to Durham to give these Riddle Memorial Lectures, a series that was done every year by different speakers. And uh, each speaker each year was asked to address a subject concerning the relation between religion and contemporary development of thought. Um, And so the contemporary development of thought that Lewis is addressing is this growth in subjectivism, this growth in a kind of relativism about moral values. Um, And its relation to religion is left largely unspecified, um, because as Lewis says in the course of the book, although I am myself a theist and indeed a Christian, I'm not attempting here any even indirect argument for theism. So he's he's setting his sights very low, not even an indirect argument for theism, let alone a direct argument for Christianity. Um, But what he's 
what he's defending really by talking about the objectivity of value is something that is entirely consonant with with Christian belief, which is namely the the idea of um, of human beings being made in the image of God with a conscience, with an instinctive um, or innate um, understanding of of moral value, which which comes from having been made by by the source of all goodness himself. Um, it's the sort of thing which St. Paul writes about in the early chapters of the letter to the Romans, where he's talking about how even the Gentiles, those without the law, those outside the law, uh, are a law unto themselves because they have the conscience which now accuses them, now acquits them. Um, and so what Lewis is really trying to do in The Abolition of Man is, is talk about this innate moral awareness that we all have um, and which we can try to deny, we can pretend doesn't exist, and, you know, we can start saying, oh, we, we just make things up according to, you know, our own personal preferences. But um, anybody who tries that sooner or later um, <laughs> will discover that it's very hard to live like that at all consistently, because right. sooner or later, you know, whatever your personal preference is, you know, you're against, say, uh, slavery, you're against sexism, you're against uh, smoking, or whatever it may be, you think these are wrong. Um, and someone says, well, I don't think they're wrong. And you say, well, you are wrong if you think these aren't wrong. Um, right. In other words, everybody must recognize that certain things are objectively wrong, wh whether we happen to like, like the fact or not. Um, and so, this is the funny thing about subjectivism. We we all we play the game two ways. Um, you are subjective in your sense of right and wrong, but I am objective in my sense of right and wrong. In other words, yes. I can do what I like, and you mustn't tell me anything that I do is wrong. Um, so it's a very it's a self serving dodge subjectivism, and it really is just a short route to uh, the a kind of Nietzschean will to power that. If nothing is, if nothing can be reasoned about rationally with with practical moral reason, then really, it, it all quickly devolves into a, a power grab. And the real question is: is who has their who has their hands on the levers of of political and social and other kinds of power? Which is so well put in, in that third lecture. I mean, it's it, it, as you as one reads it, it is incredibly. You know, I think the word prophetic is is well used. Um, for that specifically, um, you know, when he uses the word or the or the the, um, the label, the conditioners, you know, I, I could not think of a better word for than than um, the maybe to bring it to to a modern time, the um, the power that maybe for good or bad doesn't matter, but the power um, that uh, Silicon Valley has over the internet and how they are conditioning how we. Th I mean, the, those. The words and the descriptions that C.S. Lewis used in the 40s, I mean, is, is prophetic, I think. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I think it's, also, and you're absolutely right, that we are, you know, conditioned by all sorts of, of powerful forces in our society, um, which have only got worse since Lewis's day. Um, so, you know, governments, broadcasters, publishers, um, and now the internet, yes. Um, but also, you know, any number of journalists and writers and speakers and public intellectuals. 
Um, um, but we shouldn't be too, as it were, um, you know, self-pitying, as if we're just at the mercy of, of all these powerful forces. Um, right. You know, one of the things that Lewis is arguing, really, is that um, we, we're sort of, uh, we, we sort of, what's the right word? We're conspirators in our own destruction. That that's a great word, yes. Because, um, as I said, you know, it's a self-serving dodge. Subjectivism. We all like subjectivism um, when it's to our advantage, and we hate it as soon as it isn't. Um, so we're we, you know, small little people who don't have much influence over others, uh, are nonetheless, you know very probably just as guilty of, a, of, of subjectivist tendencies. Uh, and so we, we shouldn't be too, as it were, self, self-righteous about, uh, you know, about, about how Silicon Valley is, is uh, destroying Western culture. I, I mean, I'm not saying that it isn't. <laughs> right, right. But, but it's only finding it so easy to do because the rest of us are, uh, as I say, conspiring in our own distraction. Well, there's a great, um, C.S. Lewis writes in, in, in the, the Men Without Chess, you know, he says, and I think it's so, so beautifully poignant when he's talking about this idea, he says something to the effect of, I understand that um, uh, uh, old men are to be wise or something and, and, and children are to be, um, are to be Oh, wow. What is the word he used? Cute and lovable. I'll, I'll say that. It was, anyway, paraphrasing. But then he, but the beautiful part of about it is he says, I reckon, I, I'm not necessarily a great fan of children, but I recognize that as a fault in me and uh, and not a fault in the child. And he's talking about this in terms of, 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 of the self-reflection of, you know, I recognize that something is objectively sublime shall we say um and the fact that i don't recognize this as such is a problem with me not with the object itself yes exactly uh we've all got to look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves how how thoroughgoing are we in our acceptance of the objectivity of of moral value um we we always cut ourselves slack, don't we, for those things where we where we find it difficult to live up to to the to the standard. Um, but we shouldn't, um, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's that's the battle every day. I think, right? That's that's the repentance process that we <laughs> that we you know that that ritual that we need to go through. And by the way, and I think that's the other thing that that. Lewis deals with maybe especially specifically in in the way, but in, throughout the book is is the idea of of um, you know he, I don't, he doesn't use the word ritual, but having a um, old old birds teaching young birds how to fly, mm. as opposed to um, somebody from the outside conditioning and and teaching um, the new ways of the world. Yeah, well, that's the difference between uh, true moral formation and mere um, propagandizing. That, yeah, he has this image of the the old way of passing on an understanding of the objectivity of 
value of training in virtue is like old birds teaching young birds how to fly because the old birds are in the same in the same nest as it were you know right <laughs> yeah um, whereas propaganda conditioning um is when the person handing on the tradition isn't actually standing within the, the tradition themselves they they're standing outside it they're in control of it they are the controllers as lewis calls them um they they don't submit to they don't surrender to the reality of the thing that they are trying to propagate so they are propagandizers they're not propagators um and that's how you can tell the difference between the one and the other mm. let me ask you this who who is Richards and and why is he maybe the primary villain if there is one in in this work? Yeah, so there was this chap called I A Richards, Iva Richards, who was um, a, you know a, a, a fairly significant intellectual and academic um, in the first half of the twentieth century, and Lewis interacted with him quite a bit. He he names him in lots of his works, um, and in, he names him too in the course of the abolition of man. Um, and I.A. Richards had written a book called Principles of Literary Criticism, in which he um, he basically says that, um, you know, b- books don't have any genuine objective beauty about them, say. But, um, if we call a book beautiful or whatever it is, it's just because we, as individuals, happen to, to think that personally, not because there's any sort of g- genuine objective reality of beauty in the text itself um so that's a you know a prime subjectivist move on the part of ia richards and and lewis thought that it was very seriously wrong um even worse though is the fact that two other writers alec king and martin ketley took up richards's ideas and popularized them in a school textbook and it's that school textbook that lewis makes his his point of attack in the opening chapter of the abolition of man he calls it the green book and he calls the authors not king and ketley but gaius and titius so he's so sort of sparing their blushes um and he's really laying into it um but behind it he has the figure of ia richards a much more serious thinker uh, in his sights so in the course of my guide, I've, I've unearthed all the identities of these people and, and the real, the reality, the real title of that book, uh, the green book is, is actually uh, the control of language. So I've got pictures of Gaius and Titius and, and indeed of Richards and various other important thinkers that Lewis interacted with. Uh, so as to try to bring these names to life, because uh, it's very easy. One of the reasons why the you know the abolition man can be difficult is that he he throws onto the page all these names. Some of them not even real names, but noms de plume, you know, uh, pseudonyms, and um, and so it's very easy for the reader's eyes to glaze over because you don't know who's being talked about. Um, but if you can see pictures of them, if you can get little thumbnail biographical sketches of them, as I provide, um, that helps you to sink your teeth into the argument. Um, and so I myself have learned a lot in putting this book together. Um, I'm not a philosophically trained person myself. My, my degrees are in literature and theology, not philosophy. So I'm, I'm always slightly out of my comfort zone when I'm, when I'm trying to understand the abolition of man. But I hope that that's all to the good, because it means that I don't make any assumptions about 
about what is, you know, um, philosophically easy. It's all pretty difficult to me. <laughs> um, right. And so I've, there's almost nothing that I don't think needs explanation in the course of this guide. There, there's a, um, I want to maybe ask a somewhat compound question. Um, you, you mentioned, you, you talk about the green book and, and I think you use the word, uh, felony for what they were doing because they were, um, disguising, uh, philosophy, um, as, uh, as, uh, as teaching basically. Hmm. Um, and, and then you write, um, in, in, in this, uh, at, uh, under the title participation. I, I love what you wrote here on page 191. Um, he is a, he meaning, uh, Lewis is propounding a philosophy, which is more than a theory, more than merely a set of ideas. He just, he is describing something living and active, a moral ecology that embraces him, his experiences, preferences, needs, desires, foibles. And the reason I'm putting those together is because, you know, the the green book was the philosophy of Richards in action um, because there was no f- philosophical back and forth and it was it was something that was um, active and it was something that was being pushed upon um, and Lewis in the same way saw I think um, the abolition of man as a counter to that 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 uh, a philosophy has real world consequences yes and. Um- Although Lewis disagreed with I.A. Richards, he respected him because Richards propounded his philosophy straightforwardly and honestly. Uh, Lewis thought he was wrong, but at least Richards was not trying to hide it. The, The thing that really irks Lewis about the Green Book is that it's smuggling in a subjectivist philosophy in a book which is supposedly on another topic, namely, you know, how to read and write English. Right. you don't expect to be imbibing, um, you know, very deleterious philosophy in in a in a textbook of that sort. So that's why he calls it a felony. Um, it, there's a crime in the Green Book, um, not just error. Um, and yes, in his own alternative, um, his own moral ecology, this idea of the um, the Tao, as he calls it, um, he's he's using there a Chinese term from Confucian philosophy, in this way with a capital W, uh, this moral way which all human beings find themselves within. Um, it's best understood by means of participation, because morality is not something we invent; it's something we discover, and it, it could be no other way. Lewis argues it's like the truths of mathematics; we we discover them, we don't invent them. Um, we just recognize as self-evident that our neighbor's happiness should not be sacrificed to ours. Um, you know, the do as you should do as you would be done by, or, or do not do as you would not be done to by. <laughs> um, right. If that makes sense, um, that those th- those moral truths are self-evident, and um, and so we breathe in this moral atmosphere, as it were. We we imbibe it with our mother's milk. This is what it means to be part of the human race. But of course, some people seeing an advantage in subjectivism um, will advance that philosophy. Um, and as Lewis argues, 
Although it may serve them well for a brief period, it will soon come back to destroy them. Because in a subjectivist world, um, it's a free-for-all. Um, it's the law of the jungle. We abolish our mm -hmm. humanity. We devolve either into animals again, or we evaporate upwards into kind of false spirituality. Um, what makes us human is this central part of us, what he calls the chest, the head rules the belly through the chest, and the chest is this archetypally human faculty of, of trained and just and civilized sentiments. In the belly, we're just passions and feelings. In the head, we're just arid thoughts. But in the chest, we are rational animals. We are truly human. And that's what needs to be developed um, for, for a morally healthy society. That's, yeah, absolutely. What, um, he, with that, he he uh, he talks about in the the third um, lecture. He talks about the uh, um, man conquering nature and how that how that's kind of a false premise. Um, that it's really um, man using nature to conquer man. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's a very powerful, I mean, it's a huge part of that, that lecture, but it's kind of the, the thrust of where all three lectures are, are leading towards. And, and um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, it's, um, it's the idea that um, nature has value and not just external nature you know rocks and rivers and mountains and the you know the natural environment but also human nature has has objective value um now in in the course of the last several hundred years in the in, since the scientific revolution of the 17th and 18th centuries um we've become increasingly skillful at, at controlling external nature and now we're turning our attention increasingly to our own human nature and beginning to chop that up and, and move it about and uh, dissect it and analyze it. Um, but if we continue doing that, um, regardless of the intrinsic value of ourselves as human beings, then the, the person who is supposed to benefit is also the person who loses from the from this procedure. Uh, so we're, we're cutting off the bow on which we're sitting. Um, if we begin to try to see through the objective nature of value, um, we're, we're trying to, as it were, see through first principles. But if nothing is self-evident, nothing can be proved. If nothing is opaque, nothing can be transparent. A wholly transparent world is an invisible world, and therefore we've made ourselves effectively blind. Um, to see through all things is the same as not to see uh, in the famous last sentence of the book. Um, so in a way, the abolition of man is a, is a yeah, it's prophetic, but it's also um, dystopic. It's a, it's a warning about the calamity heading towards us um, if we continue down a subjectivist path. It's a very bleak book in that respect, and, and so rather uncharacteristic of C.S. Lewis. Normally he, he ends his books on very positive and bright notes, but in The Abolition of Man, it's all very downbeat. Right. Um, it's a warning, really. Is that a reflection of the wartime, uh, you know, environment that he's in, or is that, or 
you know, is obviously I think it applies directly to today, but, but do you think that downbeat is re- a reflection of the time? Uh, quite possibly. Yeah. I mean, th- another of his, um, works that he wrote around that time, uh, part of the, the mere Christianity broadcasts, uh, that also has a downbeat ending. Um, though he brightened it up when he came to publish. Um, and so, yeah, maybe the fact that, you know, it's slap bang in the middle of the second world war, um, which is a very bleak period, of course. Um, L- Lewis thought that this very serious, very alarming, um, approach to the matter was warranted. And, um, well, it's hard to, to say he was wrong, even though, you know, fortunately there has been no world war since 1945, but though the, though the war may have ended, the, the philosophical war has continued. Right. In some ways, w- war maybe amplifies or magnifies the the problems and we're able to, or people like Lewis maybe can see clearly, you know, what, what blinds us during peace. Yes, I think so. Um, there's that line in the scriptures, isn't there, about uh, wisdom is gained in the house of mourning, uh, not in the house of feasting. And so, yeah, the bleakness of the of the war situation, uh, the second war, of course, that Lewis himself had lived through, um, right. meant that meant that Lewis was not he was not going to pull his punches. Well, I, I want to tell you, this is it, your book after humanity is a really beautiful book in every sense of the of the word. It's beautifully written. Um, it's it, the it's beautifully put together. The pictures are amazing that you have in here. Yeah, I, I, I mean, this photo gallery is impressive, and you have some really interesting and, and new findings in here. Yes, I'm pleased to say I do. Um, I, one of the things I'm most pleased about with the book is the photo gallery, not just because of the pictures of of those people I mentioned, like I. A. Richards and King and Ketley, but also pictures of of certain places that were important to Lewis. Uh, he, he began his career teaching at University College Oxford and uh, in philosophy, and that, that's often overlooked. So I've got a picture of University College and some of his colleagues there. Um, I've got a picture of, of him in uniform in the First World War alongside his friend Paddy Moore, who was killed in the Great War. And I put that there because, you know, a major theme of Lewis's abolition of man is, is that death for a good cause is is the objective test, is the crucial test, the critical experiment by means of which we can tell whether value is objective or not. Because for as long as, you know, doing the right thing doesn't hurt us or trouble us, um, it's, it's not very easy to see whether it's subjective or not. But as soon as we have to suffer for doing the right thing and maybe even die for doing the right thing, uh, then, well, we would only do that, wouldn't we, if it were truly objective. Um, So Lewis's experience in the First World War and the death of his friend Paddy and his own near-death experience, I think are relevant background details to have in mind as we approach the abolition of man. So that's why that photograph is there. Um, One other thing I've found, which is in the photo gallery, is is Lewis's original blurb for the abolition of man. He wrote a paragraph in his own handwriting, uh, and I discovered that in the archives at the University of Durham. And it seems that nobody has ever seen this before. Not even the late, great Walter Hooper seems to have known about this. Uh, At any rate, nobody's ever published it before. And I got permission from the C.S. Lewis estate uh, to include it um, in the book, and 
I'm, I'm very proud to, to to be the first person to, to bring this before the world. I mean, as it happens, it's not a very good that is fabulous. Um, <laughs> you, you, you can see why it wasn't used by the publishers, but it's at least interesting to see how Lewis attempted to blurb his own book. Right. That's wonderful. Um, you know, let me finish with this. Uh, you, you you write that C.S. Lewis, I guess C.S. Lewis wrote, you you make mention that he said that um, the abolition of man has been almost totally ignored by the public. Um, and, and then you talk about, you know, the, um, the great acclaim that it really has had through history since it's been written. And um, as well as the, you know, um, even the, 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 it's been published all this time. It's still been around. Um, I'm wondering, just my mind goes to, if you meant that more philosophically, um, in other words, it's been ignored. I, I, I've read this, you've read this, you understand this, and yet we're still going down the same path. Um, maybe more as a prophet washing his hand saying, wait a sec, that you've ignored everything that, that I've, I, that I've seen. Um, I'm curious if maybe that's what he meant or, or did he literally mean, uh, why is nobody reading this thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think he meant, uh, why is nobody reading this thing? Or, <laughs> why is nobody buying this thing? Um, rather than why has, has not the whole of Western culture, uh, you know, <laughs> turned, turned on my, on my lectures. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> No, I think if, if if the context of the letter suggests that he's he's really talking about sales and readers, um, not not the actual impact of his argument, um, but and and actually he he was overstating it when he said it's been almost totally ignored by the public. Um, I mean, I don't know what he thought it it sh- should have received by way of attention, but but it actually sold well. Uh, yeah. It was reprinted very quickly. Um, it got good reviews when it was first published. Um, I think perhaps Lewis was, was deliberately sort of downplaying its success, um, just because he, well, he was a modest man, a humble man. He didn't want to big himself up. If anything, he was going to do himself down, um, and also some of his other books, like Screwtape Letters and uh, Narnia and some other things, had done extraordinarily well, you know, become absolute bestsellers. And in comparison to those books, yeah, The Abolition of Man didn't sell very well, but in comparison to your average work of academic philosophy, The Abolition of Man sold very well. Right. <laughs> it all depends on who you're comparing yourself against. <laughs> it's very subjective, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Michael Ward, thank you. I, 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 one last thing that I just wanted to ask, because as I've said, the book is beautifully put together. What was your vision for the book? It's clearly it's um, the way it's structured. You you have a, a wonderful, almost you know, page by page commentary of the abolition of man. You have historical references. You even have um, you know questions for discussion and things like that. Did you envision this as being part of? you know, the, the academic climate as, uh, you know, I work, I, I, I spend a lot of time in the, in the homeschool community. Um, I could see this being very, very useful and popular among people that, that have decided to, to you know, homeschool their homes and they, a great resource for them. But how did you envision this book? Yeah, well, th- those questions for discussion at the end are, are deliberately designed to assist groups 
whether they're in schools or universities or churches or wherever, uh, who may want to, you know, discuss the abolition of man. Um, these questions, you know, provide a, a guide to, to doing just that. But the guide more generally is, is intended to do three things, to establish precisely what it was that Lewis said. In other words, to explain all the difficult terms and to translate the phrases in Latin and Greek and French just so that we know what it is he's saying. Um, then, secondly, why was he saying it? And to answer that, I go not only to the broader intellectual context of his day, but also, as I mentioned, to his own personal experiences, for instance, in the First World War. Um, so I'm trying to analyse and unpick what it was that motivated him to write it. And then thirdly, uh, and this is the is the thing that gets least attention, um, how did he write it? How did he say these things? So I mean, there's some literary critical analysis too. And mm. I mean, mostly The Abolition of Man is extremely well written. It's very polished. It's very, you know, ele eloquent and elegant. Um, Lewis could hardly write a bad sentence if he tried. But there are one or two moments of obscurity in The Abolition of Man, and I, so I point those out. And, uh, you know, this isn't this isn't fan fiction. <laughs> this is right. a work of, of scholarly um, examination. Um, so where I think Lewis fell down, I point that out. But generally, of course, The Abolition of Man is a, is a great work, and that's why it's become such a, a classic and, and so very influential, and why everybody who knows or wants to know about C.S. Lewis really must, uh, soon, sooner or later, grapple with this book. Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate you taking some time and, and, and sharing your work. It's, it's a tremendous uh, job, and, um, and thank you very much. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. You've been listening to And If Love Remains. I'm your host, Mike Levitt, and we've been speaking to Michael Ward, the author of After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. You can find it at wordonfire.org. And uh, thank you. Have a great day, everybody. Bye.